Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight to today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lassley. And our guest this evening, we are very excited to have uh, General Larry O. Spencer, U.S. Air Force retired, former Vice Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force, and author of the magnificent book, Dark Horse, General Larry O. Spencer and his journey from the horseshoe to the Pentagon. Uh, General Spencer, thanks for coming on the show tonight. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, before we kind of dive into talking about your career, one of the things that jumped out early on in the book is that you come from a military family. And and tell us a little bit about how your family service impacted your decision in your career. Sure. Well, you know, first, my grandfather uh, served in World War I in the Army. And he owned a farm. And so my father grew up on a farm and, and all his brothers and sisters, he had uh, three brothers and uh, five sisters. And every one of my, my father and my uncles, they all joined the military. My father joined the army uh, as well as one of his brothers. And I had another uncle serving the Marine Corps and another uncle in the Navy. So, you know, I grew up as an, an army brat, if you will. And so I, I had the military around me my entire uh, life. I grew up around my father's friends, his army buddies, listening to their stories. You know, he was in the Korean War, so I heard a lot of those stories. So it was sort of, you know, even though <laughs> it was an interesting time when I graduated from high school and, and eventually joined the Air Force, uh, because of all the anti-Vietnam protests, the civil rights movement, all of that, it was an interesting time. The military was not very popular back then. But I think because of my exposure to the military, getting to watch my father, how proud he was to serve in the Army, uh, that, that had a lot to do with my ultimate decision to join the Air Force. Well, your career is certainly unorthodox. And I think one of the things that really stands out about this memoir is, is how different your career is from kind of the typical paths we've seen. You know, Brian and I both have worked uh, in the Air Force in various ways, and we've kind of seen some patterns, and yours is very unusual. So I wonder if you could maybe give us a quick overview of kind of your career trajectory and some of the, what you think of maybe the biggest challenges that you faced were, and then we can dive into some of those in a little more depth as we go. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Unorthodox is probably putting, putting it mild uh, <laughs> because uh, keep in mind, I, I enlisted initially and I was uh, in admin back then, it was called. Uh, I actually worked in the post office for one of my first jobs. And then I later cross-trained into financial management, finished my degree, got commissioned, and then as an officer was in finance. And so it it was unorthodox in a lot of ways. First, I was prior enlisted. Then when I got commissioned, though, to be in, you know, the finance career field uh, is not one that's thought of to be able to progress very far in your career. So to be able to do that is, is about as unorthodox as you can get. Uh, I was very fortunate when I made colonel was about the same time the Air Force opened up group and wing command to all career fields, support career fields, as well as uh, rated career fields. And so I, my timing on that couldn't have been better. I was the first uh, finance guy, if you will, to be on, a, on the group list and, and to get a group and also the first finance guy to be on the wing list and to get a wing. Um, so, yeah, it, it was clearly unorthodox. I wouldn't recommend anyone else use my career path as an example. Uh, But it just kind of goes to show you, you know, my philosophy all, you know, throughout my career was bloom where you're planted, just do the best you can at the job you're in. And so I didn't think about career field, didn't think about career paths, you know, what I needed to do to get this promotion or that promotion. I just tried to do the best I could at every job I had. And and, uh, fortunately for me, things worked out. 
Well, let's uh, let's go back a little bit to uh, kind of your upbringing, if you will. You know, you open chapter one of your book with a uh, a quote from the the late great Tupac Shakur, who said, "I am a reflection of my community." Now, look, this may come as a surprise to some, but uh, Tupac's album "All Eyes on Me" is is one of my favorite albums of all time. And Tupac spent a lot of time talking about where he came from and and how that affected his life and his music. And I think that where you come from also affected your life and your trajectory. So, you know, talk to us a little bit about the horseshoe, I guess. Yeah, thanks for that question, because <laughs> it's it's amazing to me how many folks, as recently as uh, last week, I had a book signing down in Woodbridge, Virginia, how many folks come up to me and chuckle about that quote that I started off the book. First of all, they're shocked that I know who Tupac is. Or was, uh, and, and so they, you know, they, maybe they thought I was too old to know who he was or was. But but that quote essentially captures not only who I am, but the reason I wrote the book. Because one of the reasons I wrote the book was because people would come up to me all the time, you know, and say, "Well, how did you, you know? How do you make four stars, especially as a support guy? You know, how do you get the four stars?" And and my response to them is always, you know, first of all, that's the wrong question. You don't, you know, you don't join the Air Force and, you know, think about how you can get four stars. It, it doesn't work that way. Uh, but the bigger issue for me was there was always an implicit assumption in those questions that I had some sort of privilege, that I was a general son or that I was an academy grad or that I was a fighter pilot. And they say they said that in the context of you know, they can't do that because they weren't a fighter pilot. They weren't an academy grad. They didn't have, you know, some sponsors uh, to help them. And so I, I always try to take a little time to talk to them about where I grew up. And that's who I really am. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm not this, you know, your stereotype or your, your view of what a four-star general's background is. It's completely opposite, actually. That was important to me to capture who I am. And I, I am a product of Southeast D.C. And, that's, and I still am. So that, that's who I am. Um, you also talk about your time on the farm, you know, with your grandparents and how important that was. I wondered, you know, we think of the Air Force as, you know, that's the technology minded service. It's you're talking about cutting edge fighter planes and all these technologies. But this kind of low tech uh, farm time seems to have made a big impact on you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? No, absolutely. Uh, again, having grown up in Southeast D.C., it was quite a contrast for me to go visit my grandfather in Southwest Virginia, you know, around Appomattox, Virginia, literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, you had to go down three or four dirt roads before you could even find the house. But it was, you know, around 60 acres. Uh, you know, he grew tobacco. Uh, my cousin, who was about my same age, he was raising my cousin, he and my grandmother, and so we got to hang out uh, during the summer. To be honest with you, being a city kid, I hated it initially because, you know, we're waking up at 530 in the morning, going out working tobacco and work, you know, do, doing all these chores and no TV. I, you know, I couldn't even get any music on the radio. I mean, I didn't like that at all at the time. But in hindsight, it, it was probably one of the most valuable and enjoyable times of my life because I got to be out there in nature, in a farm with just us. There was no place to go. My grandfather was a deacon in the church, so he ha had us in church all day Sunday. But other than that, we, we were there on the farm and that was it. Uh, I learned so much about life, so much about our country, listening to my grandfather. He taught me what he considered to be pearls of wisdom. I'm not sure they really are. As an example, he thought I needed to know the difference between a mule and a donkey. I have no idea why. 
I know the difference. I don't know why I need to know that. I haven't had to use that yet. <laughs> uh, and, and I, he also told me, and I, this I'll never forget. He said, even a blind rooster finds a kernel of corn every once in a while. I have no idea what that means. Uh, but <laughs> these were the, those are these, these, these pearls of wisdom that he, he taught me. And, you know, again, just getting up in the morning, feeding the hogs, feeding the chickens, you know, watching his work ethic that really stuck with me. I mean, that guy was a worker. My grandmother worked from the time she got up till the time she went to bed. That is something that, you know, stuck with me that, you know, they were just going to make, he made his own way. Uh, he didn't ask for help from anybody. He didn't make excuses about anything. You know, putting his, his hands and his feet to the grindstone was literal for him. Uh, and so I learned so much from being around him and, and being on that farm. It's, it, it's something that, that sticks with me even today. So I assume that, that me saying being a minority in the Air Force as an enlisted man in the 1970s during all of the racial strife was difficult is probably a bit of an understatement. But tell us if you can about how race and racial issues impacted your career, not just as your time enlisted, but as you move up into the more senior ranks as well. Sure. Yeah, it was things were really interesting in the Air Force when I came in in the 70s because it was in the middle of the civil rights movement. And it was an interesting time for the military. And if you think back, you know, with the Watts riots that bled over into riots on, on an Air Force base out in California, there was a lot going on back then. And so when I entered the Air Force, they had what they called then social actions offices uh, on every base. And they had mandatory what they called race relations courses, and everyone had to go. And they were very controversial, very confrontational. It was a, it, an interesting time. And I'll just, I'll give you two examples personally. One, when I was enlisted and I was stationed at Pope Air Force Base in North Carolina. And picture this, you know, we're, we're and I, you know, I grew up playing sports. And so I'm on the intramural flag football team and we're playing at night. It's really hot and humid, and we're getting our butts kicked uh, by the other team. We're uh, and everybody's frustrated. There's there's tension, and we get in our huddle, and a guy on our team who kind of I guess forgot where he was blurted out in the huddle, "Would somebody please block those inward on the other team?" Because most of their defensive line were African American, uh, and I sort of froze. I, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I'm thinking, hey, I'm on an Air Force base. I'm not supposed to hear that. Interestingly enough, the good news is that the, well, good news for me, I think, bad news for him, the referee of the game was African-American and heard the statement. He blurted it out so loud, so he got kicked out of the game. And I think they dealt with him through his, uh, through his unit. But, you know, that sort of thing I had to deal with most of my career, from my kids hearing things like that, my wife, depending on where we were stationed, particularly when we were stationed in the South. Fast forward to, I'm a four-star general, vice chief of staff of the Air Force, stationed at Joint Base Anacostia Bowling. And I go in one day very early because I wanted to get a workout in the gym uh, and then get to work. I pull into one of the only two general officer spots that they have. I'm in my, my athletic gear. My uniform was in a bag in the back uh, of my car. I stepped out of the car opened the back door to get my uniform in the bag out. And a gentleman that I had noticed who was parked in the row behind me ran up to me and he was incensed. And he started chewing me up one side and down the other for how dare I park in a general officer's space. And it was interesting because it was a chief master sergeant that I knew 
who was walking by and overheard this, he was incensed and he wanted to come over and jump on this guy. But I sort of said, I got it, chief, because this isn't the first time this had happened to me. And so I let him finish. He actually lectured me about how important it is for general officers to be able to get into you know, buildings and get out because they have important things to do. By the way, he was holding me up for what I had to do. So when he got done, I said, first of all, if you had just taken a second to look at my windshield, you would have seen four stars on it. So you could have saved me some time and you some embarrassment. But then I looked at him and I said, what makes you think I'm not a general officer? And it was like his face lit up because he didn't know. He, he made that assumption. And by the way, what a lot of people don't realize about this story is this gentleman was African-American. So I had an African-American chewing me out about pulling into a general officer parking space. By the way, this was 2015 and we had an African-American president of the United States. He could not see himself or someone who looks like him as a general officer. That, that's pretty sad. But those type of things, you know, my wife, we would go to social functions again. And I'm, you know, two, three, four star. And she would be approached and asked to go get someone a drink because they assumed that she was part of the staff. Look, I'm not complaining about that. I'm not bitter about it. I'm just giving you the experience that I had to, you know, deal with uh, coming up, not only growing up, but in the Air Force. And, you know, you know, the, the examples are a little bit different from the 70s to today, but they're still there, which is, I think, interesting. Well, you know, and that speaks to um, some of the issues we we hear a lot. And I've seen some reports lately about the differences in representation in rank, you know, in, in the enlisted ranks and some of the, the lower officer ranks. There's, there's, you know, better racial representation, but the further up in rank you go and even in some roles like fighter pilots tend to be less representative of the general population. I, I'm wondering if you, obviously you experienced some of the effects of, of that, but have you noticed a change in that representation over the course of your career or, or have, have there been policies or, or things put in place to, to help alleviate some of that? Yeah, let me be clear. I, I don't believe the Air Force or the military is a racist organization. So I want to say that up front. Uh, and people often ask me, was I discriminated against in my career? And my answer is no. Every, every supervisor and every boss and every commander I had was nothing but fully supportive of me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have, you know, uh, I wouldn't have achieved the, the, the ranks that I did. But that said, did I experience a lot of the things we just talked about? Absolutely. Uh, my family as well. And so unfortunately, though, the representation for women and minorities at the senior grades is still a problem. And it's, it's still a challenge. And we don't seem, it's not just the Air Force. Uh, by the way, I'm in industry now, and it's the same in industry. We haven't been able to crack the code uh, as to how we get more representation at the top. What I would add, though, is what I hope people get from the book is some of these types of things that they may not have experienced themselves. But, you know, it's hard for me to explain to folks who aren't minorities what it's like to, to go into an organization and look up at the top and not see anyone that looks like you. Again, it's, it's not, you know, nobody's mad, nobody's upset, but it, it does something to you because it sends a, even if it's subliminal, a signal that, well, I can't do that either. And that's a real challenge. So I don't think it's for lack of effort. I personally know a lot of folks in leadership in the Air Force in particular really want to see more diverse representation at the senior grades. I know that, but we have not been able to institutionalize 
policies or figure out a way to, to make much of a dent. I mean, there's, I believe there are less black fighter pilots today than there were during the Tuskegee Airmen when they were flying. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's shocking to me. I, I kind of feel like we, we could talk about race and, and minorities and people of color and other affinity groups all night long right? because it, it is such uh, an important issue and, I, and I'm, I'm glad we're getting to talk about it. And we're going to wrap back around to it here in a little bit, but let me change lanes for, for just a minute here. As a former logistics officer myself, uh, and then I went back and looked at our our previous podcast, and we've we've done test pilots, we've talked to women fighter pilots, we've talked to uh, MIG killers in Desert Storm. But I, I loved reading a book about the Air Force from a support position. So talk to us just for a minute about you know perhaps some of those more senior ranks and and how you were outside the norm as a finance officer in an organization that is really dominated by operators yeah that's a that's a great question and and again it, it's you know because of my my upbringing with my grandfather and my father you know I never believed in excuses uh, and so I, I believed in hard work so I a lot of folks ask me now, you know, they've read the book, they, they say, I had, have no idea, you know, that uh, those were challenges for you because you never complained about it. Uh, maybe I should have, I don't know. But, but I want to be clear, it is the Air Force. So I don't begrudge the fact that many and or most of the senior positions in the Air Force are held by pilots. I, I don't begrudge that. That said, though, I do believe that more non-pilots or support officers can fill some of those jobs that they don't traditionally fill. You know, I had to deal with that my entire career. You know, I just give you a couple of examples that, you know, when I was very fortunate to make a major, they don't, I don't think they do much below the zone anymore, but I made major below the zone. Uh, and I remember I was at Scott Air Force Base. And because not only did I make major below the zone, but I was a junior person on the list. And so I had to plan the, the party, promotion party at Scott. And I remember Ora and I, my wife and I were out front greeting everyone to the party. And a guy, I think he was a either C-130 pilot, I believe, came up to me in a flight suit and said, hey, congratulations on your early promotion. He said, but I don't understand why in the world the Air Force would waste a blow to his own promotion on a support guy. Um, so that sort of thing, you know, I had to listen to all the time when I was nominated for the J-8 job on the joint staff a good friend of mine. He was a four star. And so he was a supporter of mine. So he was not trying to be derogative at all. But he called me and said, hey, congratulations. I heard you're going to interview for the J.A. job. But he said, you won't get it because they always put pilots in that job. I said, oh, yeah, again, I didn't complain to him. I said, OK, I mean, you know, my boss nominated me. I'm going to go down and do my best. But so, yeah, it was it's interesting. And I, and I get this is I want to be clear. I'm not complaining about that I, I because the Air Force, you know, you need to understand operational Air Force if you're in a senior position. So if you're the, you know, if, if you find yourself in front of, a, you know, a, someone in Congress or President of the United States or, you know, and, they, and they're asking, grilling you about operational issues, you need to have that experience. So I, I don't, again, don't begrudge that at all. But, I, you know, the however is I think support officers have a lot to offer as well. And I, I personally think that the Air Force should try harder or work harder to take advantage of the talent that's out there in those support career fields, because a lot of folks are leaving perhaps before they reach their peak 
peak capability because they just don't get the opportunity. Yeah, that's such a great perspective. And I want to delve a little bit further into kind of your specific skill set and career trajectory a little bit more. Because when we first started looking at this book, I think, Brian, you called me and you were like, man, it's so interesting that a finance guy got Kurt LeMay's old job. And uh, that was just such an interesting way to put that. But, um, you know, as someone who was a, a finance expert and a budget expert, you know, what types of skill sets were so important to that job? And, and how did you go from there to being vice chief? And how did that skill set kind of serve you in that role? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, first of all, my uh, financial management chops, if I can use that term, go all the way back to when I was a kid. If you read the book, you'll know that I was a very poor student at school. But for some reason, things like compound interest stuck with me. Uh, and so I was always hustling as a kid, making money, uh, delivering. I was a delivery boy for the Washington Post, you know, cut grass, shovel snow, you name it. I was always trying to make money and I saved it because, you know, back then the interest rates were a little higher than they, uh, than they are right now, at least the savings account interest rates. Not so much inflation, but but I've always been a person who who really enjoyed efficiency and saving money. Now my wife would just tell you I'm cheap, uh, which is probably <laughs> true true as well. Uh, but I bought that with me into the Air Force, uh, and and it was very beneficial to me because everywhere I went, I always looked around to try to figure out how can we do this better, smarter, cheaper, and more efficiently. N- not penny wise and pound foolish. But how can we literally do this and be good stewards of of taxpayer dollars? Interestingly enough, when I was the I was a two star as the budget director, sort of the pinnacle, if you will, of the finance career field and the J8 job, which is about one third financial, if you will, because then you're dealing with budgets for the entire Department of Defense. Uh, There's other requirements in the job as well. So that sort of fit fairly nicely. uh, And I, I really enjoyed the job. But as I got down there, a lot of folks were saying, well, you know, why can't he be vice chief? Because, you know, he's got a lot of experience, been a commander several times. And so it it just really worked out. I had there was a chief of staff at the time, General Schwartz and a secretary, uh, Mike Donnelly, who who supported me, believed in me and they gave me an opportunity. So I I really appreciate it. I think our next question can be a dangerous one because, you know, I'd rather not go down the road of talking POM and, and PPB&E, but defense budgets are always very contested things, you know, both inside and outside the military. Can you talk about, about putting a defense budget together for the United States Air Force? Sure. Yeah. So now I could literally talk all day about budgets and PPBE. I, I won't, <laughs> but, but, I, but, I, but, I, but I could. As, I actually, someone, I, as someone who spent the last couple of days in in several multi-hour meetings about palming for things right. uh, that I won't see for for four or five years. Uh, right. This is why I say it's a a dangerous question. But but go ahead, please. Yeah, and I'll, I'll try not to, to put anybody to sleep with it. But if you look at it, I, I look at it in two buckets. You have the Palm Program Objective Memorandum, which is again, I don't know why people don't talk plain English. It's essentially a five-year budget that looks out five years into the future. And that is essentially managed by programmers or the A8 or what used to be XP, the A8 folks. They look at the five-year budget. The comptroller folks, the FMers, take the first year of that five-year budget and they, they actually have to execute it. So they actually get the real money and they distribute it out and they manage it uh, and, they, and they, they make sure all the laws are followed. So again, you go from five-year budget, which is 
almost a, almost a wish list. If you, I, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, because you know we know that five years from now everything's going to be different. But you pull that back to this year, and now the comptrollers have to actually go in and execute it. Um, so yeah, that was a I, I you know I'm a glutton for punishment, but I, I actually love this stuff, uh, and I enjoyed it because it was such a challenge to me to figure out what does the Air Force need to to be what do they need for the joint fight? And based on a limited amount of money, because money is, is you know, it, there is a limit to how much you're going to get appropriated. And then how do you make all that fit? When you're talking about buying equipment, paying people, pay raises, all the stuff that goes along, maintenance of bases, all of that stuff, mine fuel, packaging, 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 all of that into a neat budget that goes over to the Hill to be approved each year. I just thought it was fascinating to me. I really enjoyed it. To jump back a little bit to the diversity issues you were bringing up, one of the points that you really make so strongly in the book is that diversity is important for, well, so many reasons, but diversity of thought as well, and how having a diverse group of people with different perspectives can enable you to solve a lot of different types of problems in different ways. I'm wondering if you could maybe give us some examples of how that's played out in your career. Sure. Well, yeah, one of the examples I use is early on when I was a second lieutenant and I was stationed at Robbins Air Force Base in Georgia uh, and I was a finance guy, uh, actually in cost back then. And I went to my first staff meeting and of course, a, a second lieutenant, I'm sitting in the back of the room. I was at the Air Force Reserve headquarters. So they had a two star commander and a bunch of one stars and colonels around the table. Uh, and they were wrestling over an issue. It was a financial issue that I had some experience with, both enlisted and as a brand new second lieutenant. So I listened, but I, obviously as a lieutenant, I didn't say anything. By the way, I was the only African-American in the room, uh, which by the way, that didn't change much as I is retired as a four-star. That's just, that, that was just something I, had, I, I became accustomed to. So at the end of the meeting, they didn't solve it. And so they said, well, we'll come back next week and talk about it again, think about it over next week. And so as tradition in the, that staff meeting, he went around the table and then swung his chair around and started going around the room. And then he looked at me and he said, oh, my God, Lieutenant, you know, welcome. Uh, you know, who are you? So I introduced myself. Uh, and in a tongue in cheek way, he said, so I, I suppose as a brand new second lieutenant, you've got a solution to this problem. And, and, the, and the table started laughing and I was almost scared to say anything. And I said, well, sir. If you don't mind, I do have a thought. If you if you don't if you're interested, he says, sure, go ahead, Lieutenant, and solve the problem. Again, he he was joking. And I think he thought I was playing along with the joke. And so then I laid out for him, and by the way, it wasn't rocket science, it was just my experience, uh, not only as enlisted and as an officer, uh, but my experience that I brought to the table with all of my, you know, financial knowledge and all of my hustling as a kid trying to save money, uh, all of that came to bear. And I laid out a, a potential solution. And he said, thanks, Lieutenant. Welcome again. Welcome to the command. And he continued around the room. He swung his chair back around to the table. He was about to conclude the meeting and he stopped. He swung his chair right back around looking dead at me and said, Lieutenant, would you repeat what you just said? And I repeated it. And he, he, he said, he looked at the table. He said, oh my God, why didn't, why didn't any of us think of that? Uh, again, it wasn't that I was any smarter than them, nowhere close. But I had a perspective that was different from, because everyone around the table looked the same. 
by, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. I, so, you know, one of the things that frustrates me when the diversity subject comes up is folks look at it as a negative and that it's a zero sum game. And if, you know, if, if we become more diverse and other people have, have to lose, that, that is not the case. Um, the, 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 the issue is we want to we we want to get this the best people that we have to bring diverse opinions to bear on the problems that the Air Force has. So to me, in a perfect world, if, if I'm a commander and I throw a, a problem on, on the table, I want to hear from I want to hear all kinds of perspectives from all kinds of people. And when I say diversity, I'm talking about big D diversity, which is not just race or gender, but uh, it's background, uh, enlisted background, officer background, that's support officer background. Um, and so that's what I think the what makes diversity uh, such a strength. It's, it's, as I tell people, it's not a matter of building a Noah's Ark. Um, it's a matter of gathering the best talent you have and putting them around the table to bring the strongest combat power we can to bear for the Air Force. That's the purpose of diversity. It's, it's not to fill squares. It's not to, you know, to, to, to wave our hand and say we're diverse. It's to get the best talent that we possibly can and take advantage of it. That's, that's excellent. That's terrific. So kind of as, as a follow on to that, and I'm sure you get asked this, this all the time, what advice would you give to people, you know, young, the younger generation who might be thinking about a military or an Air Force career? Yeah, I recommend it uh, 100%. In fact, my grandson, who is a college quarterback right now, who believes he has an NFL, NFL future, I'm not so sure about that, but, but, I, but I'm pitching to him as a plan B to come in the Air Force uh, because it enlisted or officer. It, it now and, and all the services are great. I mean, I'm biased, obviously, toward the Air Force, but all the services are great because, particularly, if you're not exactly sure what you want to do, it gives you an opportunity to come in to serve your country. Number one, uh, but two, to to learn uh, to to learn a skill, to travel, to meet people, to to lead, to get the opportunity to lead at a very young age. You, you know, I don't I don't know about you, but uh, I rem- I remember the uh, one of the first times I flew on an Air Force uh, airplane, uh, one of the, the small DV airplanes, I stepped onto the airplane and there was a first lieutenant in the pilot's left seat and a second lieutenant in the right seat. And I was like, oh, my God, I, you know, what am I doing here? Uh, but but the, the military gives very young folks a lot of responsibility. I mean, it takes years to get on the left seat of a, of a, a commercial airliner. So 100 percent. Again, one is. Patriotism and serving your country. I mean, that's that's the re- number one. But number two, man, what I mean, what a great opportunity! If people can go overseas, they can. Uh, it's just, you know, I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't come in the Air Force. I like to think if I'd have done something else, I would have been successful. Uh, but I, I would, you know, looking back on it, I wouldn't change anything. Well, that's a fantastic way to fill this out. I want to remind everybody that the book is called Dark Horse, General Larry O. Spencer and His Journey from the Horseshoe to the Pentagon. That's from Naval Institute Press. Sir, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate it. And thanks for everything you all are doing. This is a great podcast, and you're you're providing a great service. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, is there anything online that uh, readers should be aware of to learn more? Sure. Uh, I have a website at uh, generallarryspencer.com. 
Uh, and uh, so all my information is there and uh, give it a look. And Brian, where can folks find you these days? So I am somewhat reluctantly still on Twitter, uh, but you can find me uh, on my website, www.brianlastly.com. Mike, how about yourself? Well, I am online at mwhankins.com, and all of us are online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email or submit an article for publications, please go to balloonstodrones.com slash contact. And thank you, and we'll see you next time.